Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. A friend of mine recently told me a story about a friend of his who had inherited $3 million. And then this friend, you know, took some financial advice from another friend of his. You got to invest in this one deal. It's a 10X for sure. So my friend's friend invested, lost all his money. And now the person who made this opportunity said, oh, no, no, no. Now if we just add another million to this deal, it'll definitely be 10X. We just, they just need another million. They miscalculated. So this person is like mortgaging or selling his house or something and is going to put that million into this deal. And I'm like, oh my God, this brought back A, a lot of memories for me. And B, I told my friend to tell his friend, you're going to lose all your money. You can't focus on making back your money. You're going to lose it. And my friend said, well, I wish you could talk to him. And I said, you know what? I could, and I'd be happy to, but I don't know if I'll be able to stop him from going broke. And, but it did make me think, and there's a lot of reasons for that, but it did make me think that I should put together my own personal checklist now. I've gone broke so many times and I've made so many mistakes over and over again that I really know what not to do. There's a triple contradiction, but in order to not go broke. 20 years and six months ago, I had all my money in the bank and it was in cash and it was a lot of money and it was a money that could have been good for me for generations. And look, I'm happy with the way things turned out. I wouldn't change a thing. It took me a long time to deal with regret, for instance. And I don't think I have it now because I think I really do like how things turned out and it kind of strengthened me as a person. But I wish I had enough sense when I first made money to find someone who had also made money and kept it and had a lifestyle that I admired and was a person I admired, I, I had no one to talk to. And I thought I was smart and I was arrogant about it. And I had a lot of other things going on that I think I was always so scared of going broke when I was growing up. I always was broke when I was growing up. And I felt like even with 10 million in the bank, I honestly, I was like mentally ill. I honestly thought I was broke and needed to make a hundred million. And so I get it that somebody wants to make more, that there's some emptiness inside that's not being filled somehow by money. When you always thought all your life that money would fill it. So you, you constantly are on this treadmill for more, not even a treadmill because a treadmill implies you're staying in place. You're going to fall off that treadmill and go broke with the wrong psychology so I made a checklist. I just remember one time I had pretty much 
gone past the tipping point of going broke and there was nothing I could do. I was gonna lose my home. Everybody who I thought looked up to me was going to hate me is what I thought. I had one baby and I had a one baby on the way and I thought I was ruining their lives before they were even self-aware enough to have a life. I didn't know I was gonna lose this home. I didn't know where I was gonna live. I was gonna have the IRS after me. I was just scared all the time. So I remember one day I said to myself, you know what, I need to like think. I need to just shut everything off and think. So I checked myself into this hotel room. It was the St. Mark's Hotel on St. Mark's Place in New York City. It's this tiny hotel room, like $80 for a night. And I sat on the bed. I had no phone with me, no computer. I was gonna, no books. I was gonna spend the day just thinking. Like the whole day, I was gonna just sit and close my eyes and think and try to come to grips with the regret, with the anxiety, with the sadness, and, and to try to figure out a plan. Like, what am I gonna do? Like, try to understand the problem and try, try to, could I think my way out of this problem, which I've since learned is not really possible. You can't really think your way out of a problem. And maybe I'll go over that in another podcast. After about five minutes of this sort of quasi-meditation, I just started crying because there I couldn't think of any solution. I didn't have any checklist. I didn't have anybody to go to to ask for advice. Like everybody I knew was the reason I was getting into this situation. Like either stockbrokers that were, you know, giving me bad opportunities because they wanted to make a lot of money, or, you know, all my quote unquote friends who kept wanting me to invest in their businesses and all those businesses were losing money. And I just didn't know anything about, let's call it the rules of money or the rules of keeping money or the rules of not going broke. You know, and literally I cried all day. There would be like small breaks in between where I would try to tell myself, stop crying. But just my anxiety level and my regret level was so high, I couldn't stop. Cause I would kept thinking like, is my body doomed to constantly feel this pressure and this tension. And even that was scaring me. Like, am I gonna spend the rest of my life with a, my body just screaming unhappiness? And I would start crying again. And this was like that for about eight hours. Like I just didn't leave this room. I kept thinking I would return to meditating or something and, and figuring this out, but I never did. And finally I came home and my wife at that time asked me, so did you figure things out? And, you know, I looked all around this beautiful apartment I had bought mistakenly and all my books that was like from floor to ceiling on these bookshelves. And, and I just had to say, no, I, I couldn't figure anything out. And, you know, we put up this house for sale and just things got, you always think things are going to cycle, but I realized then sometimes things just go straight down. And I admit they did cycle quite a few times, unfortunately. But I don't know, I just remember that and that final thing I was thinking, well, no, no, sorry. The final thing I was thinking that day was that I hadn't figured anything out. The fifth thing I'm thinking now is I wish I had someone to talk to. And so I wanted to make this episode basically kind of like a checklist of what I didn't know about going broke and what I didn't know about money. So let's just start off with what the problem is. The problem is once you make money, people don't realize that the next problem 
is not how to make more money. The next problem is how to not go broke. And so let's just break that down. When you think of going broke, what do you think of uh, uh, first? Like people think, oh, don't spend too much money. So they think if, and whenever someone asks me like, how'd you go broke? They wanna hear all these stories about drugs and prostitutes and I don't know, buying like expensive art and flying around on planes and whatever. If you make millions of dollars, it's kind of hard to just spend them unless you are doing things like that. You buy expensive art or ridiculous stuff. And I'll get to that in a second, but it's, it's kind of hard to spend your way from wealth to going broke. Cause there's not too many things in life that cost, you know, a million dollars or more. Obviously a house is one and we, we could discuss that, but not too many other things like, yeah, artwork or a football team, but I wasn't interested in that kind of stuff anyway. Another way you can go broke is to invest poorly. That's obvious. Another way um, is don't, don't make, you know, you can, if you could go broke, if you make poor life decisions that have financial consequences. So if you decide to go to Las Vegas and date a stripper and get married, well, you might end up going broke. Another way to not go broke is to be aware of the rules of money. And I'll go over that in a second. And one, I remember one friend of mine, Elon, we kind of grew up together. He was always broke. When I say we grew up together, we, we were both game players. Like we played chess together, backgammon together, poker together. And I remember one year he won uh, third place in the World Series of Poker. He won about $3 million. And he called me up and did the correct thing by saying, what should I, what do I do now? And I said, you know what? Put all the money in a basic account, checking account, savings account, doesn't matter. And don't do anything with it for at least a year. And I said, and he reminds me of this 15 years later. I said, let the money marinate your soul a little bit so that you become comfortable with it as a human. And he did that. And I do think he managed to hold and grow it and, and be very smart with it. And he has, he has a great life right now. I mean, if you like playing games and you make money that way and you could spend the rest of your life enjoying gaming and other things, then that's not so bad. You know, another thing is people go broke not understanding risk. And, you know, so there's some types of risks. I don't know, just in general, I think when when you make a lot of money, you get this enormous, enormous dopamine rush. Like, oh my God, my life just changed. I'm going to be more, when you have more money, you're fooled into thinking you're going to be more accepted in the tribe, the tribe of humans. And that's sort of true, actually. Like we, we, we revere money and its role so much that you sort of can anticipate and dopamine is this happy neurochemical that's all about anticip positive anticipation. You can anticipate that you're gonna be higher ranked in the human tribe. So you get this enormous, enormous dopamine rush that you've never had before. If you've been broke all your life, which I had been, and suddenly you have, let's say a million in the bank or more, all of a sudden it's unbelievable, the neurochemicals that go rushing through your brain. And dopamine is associated with also greater risk-taking. And so that could be physical risk, it could be relationship risk, it could be financial risk. So just be aware, don't take on new risks too quickly. And then I guess the final thing there is, and I'm gonna go over the real checklist in a second, but I'm just breaking down the problem of how people go broke. Another thing that happens is, you don't really understand the importance yet of being around, surrounding yourself with good people who you admire, 
who have been in this situation and can help you through it. So instead you go, you, you surround yourself with people who pretend to love you. Like, oh, James, you're so great. Uh, uh, you're the smartest person ever. Here's some deals that we wanna show you, blah, blah, blah. So I would say very important is to find good people to surround yourself with. And that's a, a key skill. But now let me just go into the checklist of how to avoid going broke. And this is the advice I hope you share this with anybody who might need this. I hope my friend shares it with his friend. Maybe he won't because I got a little too um, specific on the details, but this is what I would say is my checklist now for anybody who comes into money. And it's important to know these things, not only to avoid going broke, but I think this is good advice in general for many areas of life, but also this is good advice for making money. You know, as Warren Buffett says, there are two rules for getting rich. One, don't lose money. Two, don't forget rule number one. And it's true. If you know all the rules for not going broke, well, there's only one direction after that, which is going up, which is making money. And so I think this applies very, the rules for not going broke are also the rules for making money. And even though they're, they're kind of negative sort of rules, because I'm dealing with this one specific issue. So rule number one, don't believe the hype. Everyone is gonna hype you up, like I just described. But like, here, here's an example. One time, my ex-lawyer calls me, this is like 2005, 2006. My ex-lawyer calls me and he says, James, you gotta check out this deal. It's all about uh, telecom in Africa. Africa is going through the roof, the economy, so everyone's gonna start using cell phones and bandwidth and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, sure, I'll talk to the guy. And so I talked to this guy and he says, oh man, everything's going great. We're signing up every telecom company in Africa and Bill Clinton wants to invest, George Soros wants to invest. And I'm not, I'm not making this up. This is the actual conversation. And, I, and so I said to him, well, why, why haven't they invested? And they said, oh, they just, they just want this one round to close. We just need $25,000 in this one round. Can you invest? And I'll say, okay, I'll think about it. Send me everything. But then I started thinking, I get off the phone and I started thinking, are you kidding me? Is is Bill Clinton right now waiting by his phone, waiting for this guy to call him? And then Bill's like, hey man, did, did James Altucher invest his 25,000 yet? Because if he did, then I'm putting in my 5 million or whatever it is. Like, is George Soros really waiting by the phone to find out if I invested? No, nobody is waiting for anything involving me. And 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 by the way, on uh, on top of that, no one wakes up in the morning and says to themselves, I can't wait to make James Altucher rich. I can't wait to do it. No one has ever said that ever. <laughs> like zero people have said that. So, so for instance, if this is such a great deal, why is this guy who I've never met, I don't know him, I was a stranger to him, why is he so insistent that he talked to me to give me this opportunity? That's a huge red flag. Now you might say, well, if that if everybody thinks that way, then nobody will ever have any opportunities. Yeah, nobody should have any opportunities that they don't earn. No stranger should call you up bypassing every all the other thousands of people he knows or she knows and says, you know what? I've been holding out for the right person. I I, I heard about you distantly through my lawyer and I need to offer you this opportunity. Meanwhile, my ex-lawyer, why is he so eager to give me this opportunity? He had millions of dollars. Why didn't he invest? So I fortunately declined 
that quote unquote opportunity. But always remember, don't believe the hype, but more, even more importantly, always remember this. Nobody, like, like literally zero people woke up today and said, I can't wait to make you, whatever your name is, rich. That will never happen. There will never be a day where some random person wants to make you rich. So that's rule number one. Rule number two. And this, this is a common cliche, but cliches are true for a reason. If you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. You know, like, and I'll, I'll give you an example where I've lost a lot of money because of this. I remember these two kids had an idea about, uh, there was a fad for a while on the internet called penny auctions, where you could, um, you know, bid penny by penny uh, on on these really amazing products like uh, uh, an iPhone or an, uh, whatever. And you could potentially could win, you know, these auctions, these penny auctions were happening all the time. You could potentially win an iPhone for, for pennies, but some things would get bid up and whatever. There was all these penny auction websites. And so these two kids had some innovative ideas on this and they pitched me and I'm thinking to myself, oh man, this is great. Uh, and then they told me, yeah, Eric Schmidt, the CEO of Google is investing in our competitor. And I'm like, oh, okay, don't tell anyone else about this. How about I give you a little bit of money and I take a third of the company? And they said, yeah, let's do it. So I gave them my money and I own a third of the company. I'm thinking, this is great because they they only have to survive and I own a third of the company. I'm going to make millions. And because I bought the third of their company for almost nothing. This has happened to me before and it happened to me afterwards that when I was the only one in the deal, 100% of the time I've lost money because I thought, oh man, this is a special deal for me and I, I'm the only one who recognizes how great this is. So I'm going to take a, a huge deal for myself, a huge percentage for myself and make a ton of money. Well, guess what? I thought I was the smartest person in that particular room, but if you're the smartest person in the room, then you're in the wrong room. I'll contrast that with another deal I got in. So I almost couldn't get into this deal. I had to beg. This friend of mine, Mike Lazaro, was starting a company called Buddy Media. I won't get into the details of the company. I've spoken about it before. Peter Thiel was investing in it. He's the creator of PayPal, creator of Palantir. He was the first investor in Facebook. Mark Pincus was investing in it. He's the founder of um, Zynga, which makes all the games on Facebook. And my friend Mike's company was related to Facebook. And so I'm like begging to get into this deal. I finally was able to put some money into it. And uh, that was the time when I was the, definitely I was the dumbest person in the room. Like Mike Lazaro, the CEO was smarter than me. Peter Thiel, much smarter. Mark Pincus, much smarter. All the other investors in that deal, much smarter than me. And I begged to get in. I think, I think, I even think Gary Vaynerchuk was in that deal too. And um, it's a lot of like, good investors with huge networks and, you know, a bunch of billionaires. So I begged and whatever to get in. I got in. I was the dumbest person in the room. And that is the best deal. Well, at the, for a long time, it was the best deal I had ever been in. I, we got in at a $4 million valuation and it sold to salesforce.com for around 800 million five years later. I never invest now. Never, ever, ever. I never invest unless they're is someone, hopefully many people, smarter than me going in the investment. That is an important rule. So if my friend's friend, this guy going broke, had followed that rule, he would not invest 
unless in this special, amazing opportunity for himself, unless there was a qualified, professional, well-known investor investing alongside him at the same terms. Like I just got a phone call on a deal, a drug company that's coming out of a, a major university. I can't really talk too much about the deal because I'm still considering it, but it's an amazing drug. I read all the research, but I don't know anything about biotech or anything. So I said, well, who's the investor? Well, the guy calling me said, well, I'm putting more money in than I've ever put in before. And I've worked with this guy for 15 years. So I said, how much are you putting in? He's putting in 3 million. And I'm like, are you crazy? And he's like, no, this is, look at the research, look at And then he describes me who else was putting money in. This other guy, he said, was putting in the most he's ever put in, huge amount. And then there was all these scientists putting money in. So I figured, okay, I'm not playing. I can't play that big. I don't want to play that big. I want to put in my usual amount. And he's like, uh, my friend suggested, why don't you put in a little more than your usual? And I said, okay, I'll put in, I'll make an exception because you're making an exception, it sounds like. But it, but basically my point is, I there were many people smarter than me. There are many people smarter than me in this room. This is a deal I will probably go in. Have not decided yet though, but I will probably go in it. Here's rule number three, which is very important and which would have saved me from going broke and which would help my friend's friend from going broke would help anyone. It's called the 1% rule. The rule is don't invest more than 1% of your net worth in any one deal. So if you have a million dollars, don't invest more than $10,000 in a private investment. Don't invest more than $10,000. By the way, this applies even if you're going to be an entrepreneur. If you have a million dollars and you have an idea for a new business, don't invest more than $10,000 in your own idea. And I'll give you an example. Right now, I have an idea. I actually, this was six months ago. I had an idea. And uh, the idea is, I think, great. And I have various ways that I validated the idea, which should be the topic of another podcast. How do you validate an idea? And I always tell people, the best investment you can make is in yourself. So for instance, if a photography class costs $2,000, and you just get one wedding gig over the next year for $2,000, you just, or let's say you get one wedding gig for $4,000 where you're photographing a wedding, you just made 100% on your investment. So the best investment is always in yourself. So I know that, but I still don't invest more than 1% of my net worth, even in myself. And so far, this, this business is six months along, and I'm probably at right, around the 1% point now. So I might make, I might, there's exceptions. I could go up to a percent and a half or maybe 2%, but never more than 2%. So why never invest more than 1% of your net worth in any one deal? Many reasons. One is you could sleep at night. Like if, if the business goes to zero, the most I've lost of my net worth is 1%. So if you have a million dollars, hypothetically, and you invest $10,000 in any kind of deal or in an artwork or in yourself or whatever, okay, it goes to zero. Well, you got some experience out of it. And now instead of being worth a million, you're worth $990,000. That's plenty. Good luck on the next deal. This is the mistake I made. Back in 1999, I would put one third of my net worth into a deal, which is insane because if it goes to zero, you just lost one third of your net worth. Now you have to, you have to make 50% of your net worth on the next deal to make your money back or to feel like you're, you're, you're growing your money. And I could never sleep at night. I was putting so much of my net worth into deals and investments, even stocks. I couldn't sleep. I never slept for, for years. And I just kept doing this, and, you know, because I kept focusing on, oh my gosh, 
this is a no-brainer, this company. I'm going to make $50 million on this. If you always think about the outcomes, you're going to lose money. The key for any entrepreneur or investor or risk taker is to reduce risk, not take more risks. The main risk is putting your money, even putting 1% of your net worth at work. That's a big risk. Everything else should be about reducing risk. So the less, ideally, you get a percentage in a company by putting zero money in. And by the way, that's possible if you're consulting or advising the company or, do, or on the board or whatever. But if you have to put money in, max it out at 1% of your net worth. And again, if you think, well, this is a no-brainer, uh, like, like that one deal I was in with Peter Thiel, maybe I should have put more in. Nope. That deal survived the financial crisis. I was worried every day. If I had put more in, I never would have slept. I would have begged for my money back and I would have made less money. And that's the irony is if you put more money into a deal, even when it works, you'll actually make either the same amount of money or less in this one deal that I went in that Peter Thiel was in and all these other people they, we were given an opportunity to take our money out about halfway through. And I said, no, because I wasn't thinking I wasn't losing sleep over it. And six months later, the whole entire deal was worth eight times as much when they sold to Salesforce. So I'm glad I didn't take money off. If I had put more money in the beginning, I would have taken money off and made, you know, the same amount of money as less or less with more risk taken. So that's the 1% rule and it works. That changed. I mean, all of these rules changed my financial life. Like if you're the smartest person in the room, the 1% rule, uh, don't believe the hype when people call you. So these things completely changed my life and made me much, like a thousand times financially healthier. So number four, one strike and you're out. This is such an important rule. So this is related to, you know, surrounding yourself with good people. But I had a friend once who borrowed $10,000 from me. Okay. Actually, when he borrowed this, this was a period many years ago when I was going broke, but he was going broke too. And he needed the money. He really, I could see he needed the money and he was desperate and I wanted to help him out. So I lent it and he was like one of my closest friends in the world and he borrowed 10,000. Two years later, he had made some money. Actually, he made some money following some advice I gave him. I reminded him of this loan and he said, oh, you loaned me money? And I said, yeah, don't you remember? You were desperate. You were like, you were, you were losing your apartment. You were moving out of the city because you couldn't afford it. You had to, you had to give up on everything. You were moving back in with your parents. It was like the day before you were moving back in with your parents. And he said he couldn't remember the loan, but he said, look, I trust you. I'll, I'll send you the money anyway. That sounds kind of honorable, but I felt like crap after that. Like a, I had to remind him about this loan and it wasn't like life or death. Like if he had just asked for the money, I probably still would have been fine with helping my friend out. Although, you know, now I probably wouldn't be as, as free and easy with it. But I, I also didn't want to feel bad. Like I was, maybe he thought I was, he, I never lent him money and he was just giving me, maybe he thought I was just asking for money. And so he did send the money that I had lent him. He never acknowledged, he never said thank you or anything like that. And then, you know what? I never spoke to him again, never spoke to him. And I honestly don't know if I'm right or wrong morally in that. Like I, he invited me to his wedding. He invited me to so much stuff. He's been through his own ups and downs since then. I have never spoken to him again because it's one strike and you're out. We have, a, I, like I look around and I have 30 Thanksgivings best case left on this planet. 
I got to spend that time with people who aren't going to forget about me and aren't going to forget the things I've done for them. And all the time, I feel like I get into situations where I'm really nice and I'm really, I really offer a lot. I'm not saying I'm the nicest person in the world. I'm, I think maybe in some cases I'm gullible or I don't read people correctly. And so the way now I try to counteract that is this one strike and you're out rule. If somebody just really does something that is unbelievable to me, even just once, then that's it. They're out. And I wish I had paid attention to this rule more, particularly even in the past few years, but I didn't. And I'm learning it. All these rules, I'm learning more and more every day. It's a spectrum and not a switch. Okay, next rule, which is, I have to explain a little bit. The next rule is don't get into debt. Now, if you buy a house, chances are you're going to get into debt, but that's another story. I have never had a credit card in my entire life. I have never had a credit card. Now, my wife recently got me an American Express. You got to pay it back every month. And she says, it's better to do this because if it's stolen, blah, blah, blah. But I've never got, had a credit card, never borrowed money. And one time I was trying to rent an apartment and I had this weird credit score because on my credit report, I had never had a credit card. And so literally I had to, every person in the building, it's really hard to rent an apartment in New York City. Every person in the building had to interview me uh, to, to determine if I was qualified to live in the building because they couldn't understand my credit report. Like, how could you, how could you never have a credit card? And I had to explain, you know, I'm the one person in America who decided to never go into debt. There's nothing wrong with that. I just wasn't into getting into debt. And you know, the, 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 there's always a good reason and a real reason. The good reason is never get into debt. The real reason was I was always too lazy to fill out the paperwork on credit card applications. But the reality is it's helped me. If I could have gotten into debt at points, I probably would have gotten into it. All right, next one. Don't put a lot of money, and this is maybe applies to the 1% rule, into things that are illiquid, like houses, art, et cetera. Like people buy art and they think it's gonna be valuable. Guess what? Your art is worth zero. If you bought art, guaranteed it's worth zero. Unless you bought it at like a Sotheby's auction or Christie's auction, and it's Picasso or Van Gogh or a famous, famous, famous artist, no one is selling you art that is worth anything. The art market is not based on the quality of the art. The art market is totally based on perception. If you have inside information that a certain artist is gonna be featured in a spectacular museum, then that artist's value is gonna go up. If that artist was never in a museum and is not being sponsored by any famous gallery owner and there's only a handful of them, that art is worth zero and it will never be worth anything. Art is related to the art, not just the quality of the art, but the story, the personality of the artist, his connections, his network. An artist from Kansas City is not gonna get the same kind of connections, and I'll say it, an artist from Kansas City is not gonna get the same kind of connections as an artist in New York City where all the big galleries are. So don't buy things illiquid, hoping that they're going to go up. If you're going to buy something illiquid, again, don't use more than 1% of your net worth and just assume it's going to go to zero. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And 
I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or a pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access 
to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Rule number seven, cash, 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 cash. So everyone says keep 60% in stocks, keep 40% in bonds, keep a little bit in gold, blah, blah, blah. No, they're all correlated. It used to be like 30 years ago, if you bought Microsoft and Exxon, you thought you had a diversified portfolio. Well, guess what? Whenever you're listening to this, look at the stock market and, and look at Microsoft and look at Exxon. I bet you they both went up or they both went down because almost every stock now is correlated. And guess what? Stocks are kind of correlated with bonds now. And stocks and gold are kind of correlated. They're both edges against inflation. So, and, and look what happened in March when the pandemic started, the economic lockdown started. That was really, I don't want to say completely unpredictable, but it was unpredictable. Everyone says, oh yeah, I knew it was coming. Yeah, well then the market fell 50% or something or, or 40, whatever it was. It fell this huge amount. People were like crying, calling up crying. Like, what do I do? Do I buy more? Do I sell everything at the bottom? What do I do? Well, I wasn't thinking about this because I keep almost everything in cash. And people said, well, that's crazy. You, how are you going to make money? Don't worry about it. Like, don't worry about how other people are making money. I put 1% of my net worth in maybe one deal every one or two or three years. And if I'm investing in the style I described above, over the long run, and the very long run, by the way, not in the short run, you can't trade private deals or day trade them. It takes a long time for deals to work out. I'll make money my way. Put it this way. It's much harder to build wealth just from the stock market, if that's the only way you're building wealth. Now, yes, you can get in special small cap, micro cap deals, but you have to ask yourself the question, are there smarter people than me in this? Like, you know, and again, don't risk more than 1%. So if you're not risking more than 1%, chances are most of your net worth is going to be cash. And you know what's great about cash is you could sleep at night. You could sleep at night owning cash. It's you can just go to the ATM machine and take it out. You don't have to worry if it's going up or down every day. I love having cash in the bank. Rule number eight, be aware that there are three skills of money. And most people just think there's one skill making money, but there's three skills, 
making it, keeping it, growing it. Once you make it, do not assume you know how to keep it. Do not assume you know how to grow it. In fact, you probably don't because you've never had any experience having money. So you don't, you certainly don't know how to keep it and you don't really know how to grow it unless you do the exact same thing you did to make it like start another business exactly like the one you just started, which is rare that people do that. So spend time, figure out how to keep it, how to grow it. Those are different skills. So those are the three skills of money. Rule number nine, I wrote this down and I call this rule divorce and money, which is essentially don't get a divorce and try to make money at the same time because you're going to be so emotionally caught up in what's happening in your life. That's going to take 99% of your mental and emotional energy and you need emotional energy to make money. And even if you're not going through a divorce, but you're arguing with your spouse or your friends or your colleagues, or you're feeling insecure, if you find you're spending most of your emotional energy chasing dragons, then do not try to make money. Just keep your money you have in cash, period. But this applies to all aspects of, I, so I wrote about in Choose Yourself, something called, I call the daily practice. And I tried to figure out what was I doing wrong every time I was losing money versus every time I was making money. And it's something I call the daily practice, which is uh, 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 every time I was making money, I was every single day focusing on these four things. And by the way, just as an intro to this, everyone always says to me, what's an idea to make money? What's an idea to make money? And in fact, I put out podcasts on Fridays called Side Hustle Fridays, where I break down every Friday, step-by-step, another way to either make a living or even potentially to make millions. I don't like the word side hustle, even though I call it side hustle Fridays. I feel like a side hustle also implies, oh, I'm going to use the Uber of dogs. I'm going to walk dogs and make $9 an hour or whatever. No, a real side hustle is when you start something from scratch where you could potentially make mil you know, millions of dollars or a good living. So uh, that's what I talk about in side hustle Fridays. But the reality is in order to make any money at all, I realize for myself, at least I need to do some form of daily practice. So every day I started doing this. Once I realized that this was what was happening every day at the end of the day, I asked myself, what did I do for my physical, emotional, creative, and spiritual health? Physical health is did I eat, move, sleep well? Did I eat? Did I sleep eight hours? Did I eat well? And did I exercise a little bit? It doesn't have to be a lot. I don't want to go to the gym. But I just have to make sure my my moving, emotional health. Am I doing things to improve my relationships with the people closest to me? Let's say my wife, my children, my friends, my coworkers, my neighbors, my community, colleagues from way back that I stay in touch with. That's my emotional health. What did I do today to improve my relationships and my emotional health and my ability to deal with things emotionally and so on? Then creative health. Did I write down my 10 ideas a day? Every day, if you don't write down 10 ideas a day, your idea muscle will atrophy. And if you write 10 ideas a day down, I use a little waiter's pad. I write 10 ideas a day down. I'm looking at my list right now. And if I write that down every day, my brain literally lights up and I start having great ideas. If you come up with 3,650 ideas a year doing this, one or two of them are going to be very good and it's always going to be fun. At another point, 
I mean, I'm working on several projects right now that came from different idealists I have. And some of these are blowing me away, the effect that this idealist had to create this amazing opportunity for me that I never would have had if I didn't write an idealist. And I'll describe that in another, another episode. But the idealist is like magic. When I first started doing this in 2002, I was so depressed. This was during that time when I was like just crying all the time. But within like four or five weeks of, of writing ideas down every day, I was smiling again. I could look at people and I could understand, oh, this is how they have the ability to smile. I've forgotten how to do this. And it was all by just connecting up the neurons in my brain in new ways, being creative and, and exercising this idea muscle. And what's spiritual health? It's not like praying you know, on the ground or, or meditating or believing in anything. It's just, it's more like almost a, a, a rehab version of spiritual health, which is, and cause I was kind of in a rehab, like I was like addicted to weird habits of money and I needed to go in kind of a, a rehab and a, not a physical one, but just, this is what I mean by spiritual health is that don't try to control things that are out of your control. It's like when you go bowling and the bowling ball is like starting to veer too much to the left and you move your body like, oh, maybe the ball will go to the right if I just move my body, but the ball's already out of my hand. It's already going down the gutter. So very important. Like if there's something out of your control, move on to something you can't control. If the stock market went down today and you're in some stocks, then okay, maybe I can call some people I knew six years ago and see what they're up to. Or maybe I can write my idealist for the day, or maybe I could write it on an article that'll improve my, my social media, or maybe I could work on a pocket. So always diversify the things that you can and can't control so that when you can't control one thing, you can move to something that you can, so you'll be happier and feel like you're making progress. So that's spiritual health. Rule number 10, the three keys to entrepreneurship. This is so important. I almost want to do a podcast just about this. In fact, I think I will, but suffice to say, before you in, invest in something or before you start a new business or before you try any endeavor, keep in mind that to succeed at anything, you either need to have, I'm going to list three skills or three things you need to know about, or you need to have people on your team who are experts in these things, but you need to be expert in skills, domain, field. So I'll give you an example. I'm just I'm thinking of an example on the fly. Okay, I'm making some software related to podcasting. So I wanna improve the podcasting experience, so I'm making some software. And I have people helping me on the programming side and, and so on. Well, what does it mean, skills, domain, field? The skills with, with uh, making software for podcasting is you need to understand how to code and how to code, how to program video and audio and deal with some person might have a good network, some person might have a bad network, how do you store video, how do you encrypt video? You, these are skills. You, there's hardcore programming skills that are needed, program networking skills, and so on. So those are the skills. And you need to be, I need to look at all the competitors and make sure that their programmers are not better at these skills than myself and the programmers I'm working with. And so you could see that by just researching the LinkedIn profiles of all their top developers and so on. So that's skills. You need to be, no matter what field you're going into or what business you're starting, you need to be 
A-plus in the skills needed to execute on that business. Second key, domain. What does that mean? Well, for podcasting, I need to know how does a podcast get made from beginning to end? Like, oh, you find a guest, you record a podcast, uh, there's audio engineering. Well, what, what do you mean audio engineering? What, what so- how do they audio engineer? What software do they use? What skills do they have? What, what, what are their needs? What's the audio engineer's needs? You know, what kind of mics are the best? What kind of cameras are the best? So this is the, this is the domain. Also in the domain, what, who are my competitors? So like what software is competitive and where do they fail? Why are they no good? Why would my idea be better than theirs? So it's not that I need to know the answers to these questions. I need to be the best at asking those questions. So I know for sure when I say, oh, my software does this, but this competitive software doesn't do this, I need to know that I'm the expert in the domain so that what I say is correct. And you know that might require some research, but then I need to know how to research it. But I still need to know what are the competitors, how successful are they, what's good and what's bad about them. That's the domain. What does the world of podcasting look like in terms of the software that's out there and how to make a podcast, how to market a podcast, how to distribute a podcast, and so on. That's the domain. Field seems like it's similar to domain, but it's not. Field is what does the podcasting business universe look like right now? So who's the biggest distributor of podcasts? Well, it's the podcast app on Apple. But then there's things like Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, uh, Overcast, iHeartMedia, uh, SiriusXM just bought Midroll. Oh, well, who is who was running things at Midroll, or who's running things at Sirius, or who's running things? You know, how does the Apple Podcast algorithm work? Who would I call if I wanted to to learn that? Who are the biggest podcasters out there? What are the best podcast groups on Facebook, on LinkedIn, on Meetup, or wherever? So that's the field. Like, who are the like if I ever build this company? Who would I call if I want to get outside validation that the product's good? Can I get them to use it? Who would I call later on if I want to sell the business? Do I call? Who would I call at Spotify? Who would I call at Google? Does Google even need this? Something like this? Does Spotify even need something like this? So the field, what's the podcast universe look like? Are there two million podcasters? One million? How many average downloads does each podcaster get? What's who are the advertisers in the podcasting world? What is an advertisement deal? So anyway, that's skills, domain, field. I'll talk about that some more some other time. So this one I've talked about before, rule number 11, risk is more important than opportunity. Doesn't matter how much money you're going to make, again, reduce risk. If someone says to you, man, 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 you're going to make 10 times your money, and if they keep talking about that but they don't address the risk, this is a bad deal, even considering if rules number 1 through 11, uh, 10 are, are fine for you. Rule number 12, ask for help. Again, I wish, I wish in 1998, 1999, 2000, to February 2000, this, the first time I sold my first business, February 2000 was like the peak. And I was looking at my checking account, literally, and I couldn't believe that this was me. Like, I couldn't believe it. And I thought I was going to follow in the footsteps of my dad and just go broke. And here I was, I, I'd, beaten the curse. And then just six months later, I was dead broke. And I wished in February, 2000, and I regretted this for a long time. I wished, I wished I could had somebody, I could have said, listen, I don't know what I'm doing. 
help me. What, what do I do? I've never been in this situation before. And you could ask yourself, try, first off, try not to have the smoking crack bias. Like, oh, I made all this money, so I must be smart. No. Ask yourself, have I ever been in this situation before? Be honest with yourself. No, I've never had this much money before. And now I need to learn how to keep it. So find someone who was able to keep it and ask them for advice. And if they say, oh, just go with my stockbroker or go do this, do this. If they give their advice is too specific, then don't listen to them. If someone says to you, listen, are you praying to God every day? That might not be good advice, but at least that tells you this is a person who's going to give you broad, general advice that you could incorporate into your life. Maybe you don't want to pray every day. I'm not recommending that, but they might then say, don't invest more than 1% of your net worth. Like I just wish someone had given me even one piece of good advice. Nobody gave me any advice, but also I didn't ask for help. I didn't even think to look for it. And I, I will say I regret it, but uh, I don't regret it in such a way now that I wish I had done that because I feel my life has deepened so much by, by being basically cut wide open and, and completely bleeding out on the floor and, and surviving that. But you know, I wish, I wish I, I could have asked for help. And I hope this podcast is in some small way, a way of what I would say to somebody if someone asked me for help. And by the way, over the years, many people have, and I feel like I've been able to help, but I hope this is, please share this. If you know anybody, not only anybody who needs to keep their money, but this is the techniques for growing it. Because if you're not going to be able to reduce risk or, or keep it, you might have a trouble making it. It might be that keeping it is the first skill and making it is the second skill. Don't know. Number 13, rule number 13, diversification. What does that mean? As I said earlier, it doesn't mean own Microsoft and own Exxon. For me, very specifically, and I did a, a podcast a few weeks ago. I'll do another, another one soon, a day in the life of, because you know I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a writer, I'm a podcaster, uh, I'm working on, two different businesses right now, actually. I'm working on two different books. One's an audio book, one's a written book. I'm working on my podcast. I'm doing the podcast this second. I'm an angel investor. I do have investments that I keep track of. And, and, and so I have multiple ways that I make money. I have like five or six different ways that make me money. I'm also a comedian. I don't make any money doing that. That's for fun, but it's still a way I measure my success of the day. Like, did I move forward in that and, and so on? I don't have to move forward on everything every single day, but I know that like, you know, like yesterday's a great example. Almost everything I owned took a step backwards. Like I, you know, I have, a, I have a couple of stocks because companies I was invested in privately went public and those stocks went down yesterday. And uh, one writing project I was working on took a little step back. I had to do more more editing than I realized. And, you know, so a couple of things disappointed me yesterday. But at night, I went out and I performed at a local comedy club and I did, I think I did well. And that was diversification for me. I ended the day happy. And not that I have to be, not that that's a requirement for every day, but diversification helped with that. Diversification are the things that I'm passionate about. The, the next two rules, I, I, I kind of forget the reasons I wrote them. I mean, number 14 is the 80-20 rule. And this is important to remember, I guess, which is that you know 80% of the money you make in life are gonna come from 20% of the things you do. 
So this is important to realize that if you only do one thing, you're not going to make a lot of money. Like if you only have the same job from the ages of 20 to the ages of 60, you need enough things so that this 80, 20 rule can apply. So you have to do, in other words, you have to have five things going on and most of the money you make will come from 20% of your activities. If, if you invest in private deals, 80% of the money you make will come from 20% of the private deals you invest in. So you need to in, invest in enough things, no more than 1% of your net worth in each thing in order for this 80-20 rule to kick in. This 80-20 rule always works. 80% of the money that I've made in the past 13 years have come from literally 20% of the investments that I've made. Like the, the math works exactly. Again, for my the friend of my friend who's about to lose all his money that he inherited, you're not applying the 80-20 rule. You're putting 100% of your money and more in one thing that you hope will give you 10 times your money. This is almost mathematically a guarantee that you're going to lose everything. And I hope you don't do it, but I don't think you're going to be listening to this. And again, you can't be disappointed if you start a business and it doesn't work out. Start the next business. A corollary of the 80-20 rule is the importance of quantity for success. Albert Einstein wrote and published 285 scientific papers in his life. Did you know that? Do you know what those 285 papers are about? No, because almost all of those papers, almost all of them are worthless. All we know is E equals MC squared. We know his special theory of relativity. We know his general theory of relativity. And maybe there's like one other thing we might know. God doesn't roll dice. That's his uh, comments on quantum mechanics, which he was wrong on. So again, you know, Picasso, he made 60,000 works of art. Do you know all 60,000? No, you may even know a dozen of them. So quantity is the key to creativity, is the key to making money, is the key to success, is the key to happiness. Don't have quantity in wives, by the way. That doesn't apply. It's the one way it doesn't apply, but everything else it seems to apply. Rule number 15, no regret, no anxiety. You cannot succeed right now if you're too focused on the past and regret is a way of time traveling into the past. Like, oh, even right now, as I'm thinking of these rules, oh, if only I did this in 1999 or 2000. I'm literally, when I'm thinking that, I'm like, it's as if I'm sitting in my office in 2000 and I'm picturing, I'm time traveling to that scene and feeling the feelings that I had then. And I'm, and that's what regret does is it time travels you. And anxiety is like, oh my God, what if the pandemic never goes away? What if the lockdowns continue forever? What if they stop, you know, what if this, everybody gets just issued, you know, a, a, a clothing and, and rooms to live in and the society breaks down and there's violence. And well, now I'm being anxious about something that's almost never going to occur. And it's in the future. You can't time travel to the past or the future. If you want to succeed right now, you need to spend as much time in the present right now as you can in order to succeed in the right now. If you're not here, you're, you're elsewhere and you're not working on what you need to be working on here. So no regret, no anxiety. I don't know how to have no regret or no anxiety. It's sort of because for me, it took me many years to get over my regrets and, and it took medication, honestly, for me to get over anxiety. And I, I do regret that because it 
made me an addict to the anti-anxiety medication. And it's brutal getting off of that. But no regret, no anxiety, rule number 15. And again, I'll summarize real quickly the rules. But the, the important thing is this is a checklist for not going broke. Don't believe the hype, meaning no one's waking up eager to make you rich today. If you're, if you're number two, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Number three, don't invest more than 1% of your net worth in any one deal or even in yourself. Number four, one strike and you're out. So if somebody screws you, they're out. Or even if they screw themselves, like I had one friend once, he, I was a business partner of his and he called me up at four in the morning and he's like, dude, can I come drive to where you are and, and borrow $800? I just was at a strip club and then I was robbed at the ATM machine and blah, blah, blah. I lent him the, or gave him really the $800 and then boom, that was done. Not a good business partner because that's what he's doing. So one strike and you're out. Number five, don't get into debt. Number six, don't play around with illiquid stuff. And I know private investments are illiquid. So, you know, you have to reduce risk in those, but random things like art or even houses, don't do it if you're going to, if you're doing it to make money and then try to stick to the 1% rule. I know that sounds weird with houses, but that's another topic. Rule number seven, cash, cash, cash. Keep most of your money in cash. Like I told my friend when he first made money, keep it in a checking account for a year to just let it marinate your, your soul. Number eight, be aware that there are three skills of money, making it, keeping it, growing it. Number nine, the daily practice. And you have to do the daily practice in order to succeed and reduce risk. It's physical, emotional, creative, spiritual health. Number 10, rule number 10, the three keys to entrepreneurship, understand skill, be an expert. You have to be number one or top 1% in skills, domain, field of whatever area you're trying to succeed in, whether it's being an entrepreneur or something else. Number 11, understanding risk is more important than understanding opportunity. Number 12, ask for help. Please just ask for help. Put together your personal board of advisors of people you admire and trust and who will be honest with you. Number 13, diversification of opportunity, diversification of passions, Number 14, the 80-20 rule, 20% 20 of the work you do will create 80% of the value. Number 15, rule number 15 for not going broke, no regret, no anxiety. And if you have any questions or any comments, you can tweet the questions out to me at Jay Altucher. Happy to answer either right there on Twitter or on this podcast. And if you like this, and you can think of someone this could help, maybe they have money, maybe they don't, maybe they'd like to get money. These 15 rules are really important. I, I can honestly say, I wish I had thought of these things before. This is so important. I really wish I had. So feel free to share this with anybody who might need it. Oh, I hope you write a review, a, a, a good review on Apple Podcasts about either this episode or po my podcast in general, because I, I like people to you know, as I always continue, you know, figure out how to improve the podcast and, and, and how to continue it, your ranking on the Apple podcast algorithm is important. That's based on reviews. And I always want to hear what people think, what suggestions people have, what questions people have. So please write a review for me on Apple, subscribe to me on Apple podcasts and write a review for me. It's so important. 
Got some great podcasts lined up for next week and see you soon. Thank you.